You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, division of endocrinology and metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. The emergence of type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents over the past 20 years represents a huge shift in pediatric chronic disease. What do we need to know how to manage our patients? Joining us to discuss type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents is Professor of Pediatrics and Director of the Children's Diabetes and Endocrine Center of South Texas at Dristol's Children's Hospital in Corpus Christi, Texas, Dr. Stephen Ponder. Dr. Ponder, welcome to ReachMD. Great to be here. Well, great. Let's just jump into this huge issue of type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents, especially in Texas and around the country. Why the increase? Well, I think our working definition of diabetes needs to change in children. You know, obesity alone has recently emerged as the best predictive factor for diabetes in people of all ages, yet over half of all children are overweight or obese. So, in my opinion, glucose intolerance in a child can now be much more of a diagnostic challenge than it ever was before. But let's, let's talk about type 2 diabetes in kids and teens. If you look at the typical patient in this, in this category and then work backwards, what you'll see are several interesting things. First, obesity occurs quite early in the life of these patients. Typically, they exceed established weight norms well before they even start school. Second, there are almost always one or more immediate family members with type 2 diabetes themselves. This point underscores the inheritable basis of this condition. Occasionally, we even diagnose a parent with type 2 diabetes when their child is diagnosed. But as far as mechanisms go, I think the general inflammatory state that's associated with obesity most likely plays a role in damaging insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas and contributes to their failure over time. Also, we're accruing more awareness of the bulk, that the bulk of the genes that are associated with type 2 diabetes seems to be connected with beta cell metabolism and its physiology, presumably setting them up for earlier failure. As an aside, I've been very surprised lately by the profound level of vitamin D deficiency in newly diagnosed kids with type 2 diabetes, which we know influences immune regulatory tone. So quite simply, many of these forces are coalescing in obese children, children here to form a perfect storm scenario for early onset type 2 diabetes. Well, how do you work up a patient like this? Well, I make it a point not to tell most new diabetes families that I know for sure what type of diabetes their child or teen has. For one thing, up to 20% of these children who otherwise possess the history and the phenotype that would be considered classical for type 2 diabetes actually possess, possess measurable autoimmune markers characteristic of type 1 diabetes. As I mentioned earlier, I think the inflammatory state that accompanies obesity has something to do with this. The workup I do involves screening for a number of comorbid problems. Laboratory-wise, I measure liver functions, lipids, thyroid levels, and thyroid autoimmunity markers, as well as diabetes autoimmune markers, hemoglobin A1C, and even vitamin D levels. The, the two-hour oral glucose tolerance test is often done and can be very, very helpful in explaining the condition to the family. You know, Steve, that's interesting because, uh, you know, I would be caught uh, doing the wrong thing because I, I would see a heavy Latino kid. Both parents have type 2 diabetes. I would not be measuring autoimmune markers. So maybe I would fall into what you refer as the clinical trap 
uh, at the diagnosis. Is that what you're referring to? That's one of the many clinical traps that are out there. I, you know, some docs actually will even discover uh, elevated plasma insulin levels in the course of the diabetes evaluation in kids and often uh, can misinterpret this as even evidence of diabetes. I've seen that many times. Of course, the insulin level itself is, has nothing to do with the diagnosis of the diabetes. That's a glucose uh, definition. I've seen this confusion, however, spread to the patient or family who believes that an elevated insulin level alone means they have diabetes. For, for the past decade here, uh, schools in, in our area of the country have been mandated to screen children and teens for the presence of a condition known as acanthosis nigricans, which is a dark, velvety discoloration of the skin on flexural areas and body creases. And this too often is also misinterpreted as direct evidence of diabetes, when the reality is that acanthosis is simply a marker for insulin resistance. Still, we find that about 1% of AN-positive school children actually have undiscovered diabetes at the time they're discovered in the school screening program. I've referenced other major, uh, the other major trap previously, which is the assumption that the, the obese child, or the obese adult for that matter, must have type 2 diabetes uh, just based on obesity alone. And I have numerous clinical examples of children with not only type 1 diabetes, but monogenic forms of diabetes, such as Modi, who clinically appear to have classic type 2 phenotypes. So having a good handle on diabetes type drives many of our patient management options, to be sure. But don't always be too quick to assume to know the diabetes type in all children. I certainly don't know this, and I've been doing this for decades. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm learning a lot from, uh, from talking to you here on the show. Now, uh, can you have both type 1 and type 2 together? Uh, I, you can have insulin resistance and you can have uh, uh, autoimmune diabetes, uh, absolutely. Uh, acanthosis nigricans, insulin resistance, if you will. Uh, I call this a universal donor condition, if you will. Uh, I see children that uh, uh, have just about every other endocrine disorder you could imagine who also happen to have obesity and acanthosis nigricans and, and insulin resistance. So it stands to reason that uh, why would type 1 diabetes or even monogenic forms of diabetes be immune to also being co uh, Associated with insulin resistance. Now, I know the folks at Children's Hospital at UCSD, they tell me every year they count the number of newly diagnosed kids and they look at the population of the general area and they say the prevalence and incidence is increasing dramatically. Could we talk a little bit more about that? What are the reasons why? Is it, uh, is, is it because of stresses on the autoimmune system or just our lifestyle with a, with a strong genetic tendency? Well, I think there's a, there's a huge lifestyle component to this, no question. I think there are financial issues that drive it for many of my families because many of them can't afford uh, uh, to eat as healthy as perhaps more affluent families might. Uh, exercise options may be limited as well. Uh, I think there, there are a number of reasons why we're seeing more of this problem down here. We already mentioned the ethnic connection, which exists from a genetic standpoint to begin with, but I think that uh, the socioeconomic drivers of this uh, also play a significant role in why we see so many young children uh, along the border area of our country uh, coming up with type 2 diabetes. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Ponder. We are discussing the increase of type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents. Let's shift to the medical management of these patients. Um, give us a, a kind of an outline of your approach to these people, and what's your first line of defense? Well, uh, my what I think is that the, the socioeconomic drivers are the greatest challenge for me to work up these children. Um, I, I, unlike most other type 1 families, 
there are lots of other family members with type 2 diabetes, and they're often not necessarily the best role models for their children. Uh, many of our families are financially challenged. There may be uh, high levels of unemployment, substance abuse in some of the children or teenagers. Uh, some family members may be actually caught up in the criminal justice system, and there are a lot of single-parent households. And, and, and also in my area of the United States, many of our families are Spanish-speaking only. Uh, fortunately, my staff is bilingual. Uh, and so many of the times, most of my, my workup is focused on just solving basic life problems for many of these families, like just keeping their Medicaid coverage current or getting them basic transportation to visits or just even purchasing $4 per month medications from Walmart. Um, many of our families are rural, and as I may have mentioned before, many are not legal residents. Uh, my social worker is actually the most important person in my practice in taking the lead on identifying all these barriers at the first encounter with each patient. And so that drives everything from the type of education they're able to get, the medication we prescribe, and when the appointments can even be made. But uh, I don't want to underemphasize uh, what is the most important thing for all these families, no matter whether they have type 1 or type 2, and that's quality diabetes education in, in as much of an ongoing fashion as my staff can possibly provide them. So, Dr. Ponder, what are the key challenges in the medical management of these patients? Well, many of these children have many comorbid conditions, and I can give you a, a short but not complete list. And, for example, sleep apnea is very prevalent in a morbidly obese child, uh, and especially those with type 2 diabetes. And it's one of the things we actually screen and look for. And it will inhibit our ability to control or, or improve their, their weight situation. Um, lipid problems, high blood pressure, um, um, joint and back problems, Problems, uh, cardiovascular disease. I, I have to admit, I had a five-year-old child uh, that died of a heart attack that was uh, listed on his uh, cause of death as being related to his diabetes. He was uh, 18 months of age when I first started seeing him. He was morbidly obese, and at age five, he passed away of a myocardial infarction a uh, hundred miles away at another city. Uh, that was the most, uh, that blew me away more than anything else I've ever seen in my practice. And I share that with families. And in fact, that child's family allowed me to do that. So I could make that point uh, of the need to act early with this population to prevent this from becoming uh, a problem which, we, which will shorten their lives immensely over time. Now, what about therapy? Is there a different approach with, uh, let's say, a, a teenager with type 2? I think many of our, our approaches are similar, perhaps, to the adult population. If the hemoglobin A1C is significantly elevated, and I think it could be debated as to what line you want to draw in the sand for that, then we will certainly start insulin therapy early in the management of the patient, simply uh, for no other reason than to take care of the high glucose levels and to get them down so that the oral agents, notably metformin, which is approved for use in children, uh, can kick in and address the insulin resistance problem. As you know, in children, we often are limited in our uh, uh, in our uh, uh, formulary in terms of what we can offer to some of our kids. Some of the uh, newer agents are, are, are limited in their application in children, at least for now, until we get new indications. So insulin and metformin are quite often my two uh, combination medications. I usually get them off insulin, however, in about two or three weeks if I can get rid of the glucose uh, toxicity effect that's no, you know, known to occur early in diagnosis in any patient and allow time for the uh, insulin sensitizer, or the metformin in this case, to kick in. I want to leave a little bit of time because our listeners will be really interested in your telemedicine program. Well, Diabetes House Call 
It's now in its fourth year. And, and this is a full-service specialist pediatric diabetes consultation service. This, the recipe for this is very simple. You take an established patient with diabetes, preferably right now type 1 diabetes, first get to know them and properly educate them, and, and, and then afterwards do follow-up visits directly into their home using their own home PC, webcam, and, and Internet access. I, I like to point out that no new patients are ever seen by this method. They have to be vetted, and they have to be thought to be, uh, you know, uh, good risks for doing this. Each patient must have an established medical home willing to support and manage all non-diabetes-related problems. Patients are seen then quarterly or as needed online. Yearly in-office face-to-face visits are still required with me in, in my main practice location. Blood sugars are automatically transmitted to, to, by the patient or the family using their what we call the Glucomon ADMS system, which is a GPRS wireless appliance, which requires no PC and can work in remote rural areas, which transmits their blood sugar data to us at their request. Uh, A1Cs are done locally, uh, either with a home-based method or by the, the primary care provider. And our visits are a half hour to 45 minutes. And as you well know, time with a specialist like you and me is, is valuable to the patient. So rather than spending five minutes with a specialist and 25 minutes with everyone else and two hours in a waiting room, they're spending 30 minutes only with a specialist sitting in their living room. Well, you, you've stimulated a lot of ideas for, for my practice at UCSD and the VA. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Pediatrics and Director of Children's Diabetes and Endocrine Center of South Texas at Driscoll Children's Hospital in Corpus Christi, Texas, Dr. Stephen Ponder. Dr. Ponder, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.